This is uh, patient care theory one, unit five, part six D, respiratory distress, cardiovascular. And again, we touch on this subject off and on a little bit, uh, heart failure, uh, but from a respiratory distress um, perspective, and we'll talk about um, congestive heart failure and pulmonary edema when we get to the cardiovascular section as well. But, but since we get patients who present with their chief complaint is dyspnea, and it may be uh, a respiratory um, cause, or it may be a cardiovascular cause. And so we'll talk about pulmonary edema, secondary to CHF, we'll also talk about pulmonary embolus. And the pulmonary embolus, would that cause uh, primarily a shunt or a pathological dead space? Pathological dead space, excellent. And what do the lungs typically sound like with a pulmonary embolus? Clear. Yeah. See, you guys are rocking the homework. I like it. Yeah. It's good. Okay. So, acute pulmonary edema, etiology. There are a lot of different causes of pulmonary edema. Uh, but one of them that we're going to focus on is cardiogenic. So, that means um, the ventricle, the left ventricle, has reached the point where it's unable to pump its content under certain circumstances. So that might be exertion, or it might be uh, if the patient suddenly has a bout of hypertension, that might put them into acute uh, cardiogenic pulmonary edema. And uh, so basically, uh, when they get into pulmonary edema, it's because the left ventricle is not able to pump what it, what it gets, and so it backs up in the left atrium and backs up into the lungs. You guys with me? Okay. And um, so as a consequence, it starts to leak into the interstitial space and it starts to leak into the alveoli. <coughs> when it leaks into the interstitial space, it may actually irritate the conducting airways and cause bronchospasm. So you might even hear a wheeze in a CHF patient. But generally speaking, we don't treat it with a bronchodilator. Uh, we treat it with uh, nitrates, and I'll get to that in a second. So. Um, as a consequence of this blood backing up into the pulmonary circuit, we get an increase in hydrostatic pressure, uh, hydro meaning water, static meaning static water essentially. Uh, so hydrostatic pressure in the pulmonary capillaries, uh, that leads to leakage of fluids into the pulmonary capillaries and into <coughs> the interstitial and ultimately leads to crackles in the lungs. So the sound of air going through fluid gives you crackles. and. Um, so there are a number of non-cardiogenic uh, causes of pulmonary edema, but for those, you're going to patch to a base hospital physician to see if they want you to put the patient on CPAP. So um, non-cardiogenic causes of acute pulmonary edema include things like abnormal capillary permeability, uh, sepsis, which is a body-wide infectious process going on, uh, inhalation injury, so inhaling toxins, uh, drugs like opioids, for example, Opioid overdoses can cause pulmonary edema. Salicylates, like aspirin, can cause uh, overdose, uh, can cause uh, pulmonary edema, rather. <coughs> uh, renal failure, high altitude, can cause pulmonary edema. They call it high altitude pulmonary edema, for that reason. <coughs> high altitude can also cause flatus, which is an actual term for that, high altitude flatus expulsion. So before a flight, don't recommend eating, drinking anything carbonaceous or uh, uh, eating things like cabbage. Um, aspiration can cause pulmonary edema, seizures, trauma, central nervous system injuries, in other words, brain injuries and airway obstruction. Uh, so a number of different causes. But the one that you and I treat with CPAP will be 
cardiogenic pulmonary edema. All others we'd have to patch to a base hospital doc to get an order. Near drowning as well cause pulmonary edema would be another one. So presentation, typically they're going to be dyspneic, they're tachypneic, uh, they're orthopneic. Remember what orthopnea means? I hear a lot of, uh, 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 Charlie? Is that down and they yeah, right, they need to sit up. So not necessarily tripod, but they, to sleep, they need to sit up. So they need to prop themselves up with pillows or sleep in a bed that props up the head. Yeah. Um, crackles bilaterally. So um, uh, important to distinguish between what causes bilateral crackles versus what causes unilateral crackles. So you might have unilateral crackles with a pneumonia. You're going to have bilateral crackles with cardiogenic pulmonary edema uh, because it's, it's fluid backing up into the lungs and you get a, a bilateral effect. Um, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. Have I thrown this term at you yet? This is a great term. Paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. God, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's <laughs> equally beautiful to gross outpouring of cranial content, but just on a different level and a different context, right? Yeah. <clears throat> I never actually say to a triage nurse or receiving nurse the patient has paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea because the nurse will just look at me like I've crossed that line between Keener and Wiener. And, uh, uh, but I will document it, or I'll just put PND <laughs> there. But uh, yeah, so paroxysmal means sudden sort of unexpected, nocturnal at night, and dyspnea. So uh, when you're taking a history from these patients, uh, from these CHFers, um, ask them, you know, when did this start? Uh, it started about 3 a.m. What were you doing at the time? I was asleep. So did it wake you up? Yeah, it woke me up. Ding, 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 ding. Paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. <laughs> That's when you turn to your partner and you say, Oh, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. <laughs> I concur, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. <laughs> the patient says, what? <laughs> you say, oh, it woke you up. Right, paroxysmal <coughs> nocturnal dyspnea. Uh, there may or may not be wheezing. And uh, in severe cases, there'll be fulminating pulmonary edema. Um, and hypoxia does interesting things to people. Um, when you put people in hyperbaric chambers and you lower the oxygen content, you, you, you diminish the atmospheric pressure. Um, hypoxia affects people in different ways, a little like alcohol. There are giddy hypoxics. Um, now, CHFers, you know, COPDers are hypoxic. They'll never be giddy because they're struggling to breathe, right? But, but um, um, hypoxia can cause uh, confusion uh, or delirium, it can cause uh, agitation, it can make people combative, it can make people paranoid, uh, it can do strange things to people. The most um, interesting, um, one of the more interesting calls I've ever heard of about a CHFer was uh, a buddy of mine, Dave and his partner, went to a call for a guy who was a CHFer and he had um, fulminating pulmonary edema. So he actually had frothy stuff coming out of his mouth. You see those old cowboy movies where, where horses 
die from running for days on end. They usually die in heart failure, right? They've got fulminating pulmonary edema. And uh, anyway, they got to this apartment and um, they knocked on the door. There was no answer. The door was open a little bit, so they opened the door and this guy was standing behind the sofa with his pajama bottoms on and no shirt on and he, he looked sweaty and very pale and he was struggling to breathe and they could hear the crackles in his lungs and he had frothy, pink frothy sputum coming out of his mouth. And they walked in, they said, hi, sir, where are the paramedics? And they started to approach him and he got really agitated and he started to run from them. And so they said, you know, they're going around the sofa saying, it's, it's okay, we're, we're going to take care of you. We know you're having a lot of distress. And he kept moving. And then he started to run like a, like a light jog around the sofa. And he got around the sofa about two and a half times <coughs> and then dropped dead. And they were unable to resuscitate him. But this is what hypoxia does to your brain, right? It, it alters your ability to make decisions. And uh, to, it alters your behavior. So um, someone who presented with pink frothy sputum, almost guaranteed you're gonna have to PPV them. They're gonna be like zero word dyspnea and altered mental status. You're gonna have to PPV them. They may have uh, distended neck veins. And how do you know when someone has distended neck veins? What position do they have to be in to begin with? Yeah, sitting up, and to what level would you see the neck veins? To the angle of the jaw. So if you see the neck veins distended to the angle of the jaw in a sitting position, that's JVD, right? Now, if you look at anyone lying down, their neck veins will be distended to the jaw, right? So next time you're lying next to someone naked, look at their neck veins. <laughs> but again, do not let them catch you doing it, right? <laughs> you know? and, if they and if they and if they wake up and they say, "What are you? What are you looking at?" And <laughs> yeah, and if they can't handle it, then you don't want them anyway. Yeah, it's not the one for you exactly. It'd be a little disappointing, though, if someone was, <laughs> you know, someone was staring at your neck veins and not looking at you like, oh my God, you're the most beautiful person I've ever known. You've got to be careful of the language used as well, because these are jugular veins, right? Um, so we had a... We had a trauma patient and uh, we were unable to get IV access and sometimes we'll, we'll stick an IV in the external jugular vein. Uh, advanced care paramedics can do that, <coughs> primary care paramedics don't, but we'll, we'll cannulate the external jugular vein. So, so I was describing this patient we had in a motor vehicle collision and uh, to a colleague of mine and said we couldn't, we couldn't get an IV in her and he said, what were her jugs like? meaning her jugular veins. And, um, <laughs> just, it's not the kind of thing you say in public, so, and probably just terminology you should avoid altogether. But honestly, you know, uh, I don't mean to sound inappropriate, but that kind of language is used all the time in the OR and the ER. Um, you know, like, how are the jugs? It means how are the jugular veins, right? Um, so. They may be cyanosed, uh, they may be tachycardic. Cyanose in a CHFR is probably a bad sign because they're not, n unlike COPDers who are chronically hypoxic and chronically cyanosed, 
any other patient who has cyanos, it's a bad sign. It's a bad sign, right? They may be tachycardic, they may be weak, they may be diaphoretic because they're gonna have a sympathetic response going on. Uh, treatment uh, is as follows. So SpO2 in room air, uh, oxygen if they're, they've got a low SAT or they're really struggling to breathe. And we give them nitrates. So the idea is, meaning nitroglycerin, right? Which we spray under the tongue. So here's your heart. Um, here's your uh, inferior vena cava, superior vena cava. You guys haven't reached cardiovascular stuff yet, right? Just, Just starting? Okay. So there's your heart. Sean's amazing, eh? That guy's so nice. He wouldn't say shit if he had a mouthful of it. He's so nice. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard him swear a couple of times, and it's like, what? <laughs> what did you just say? It's the strangest thing. Um, anyway, so nitroglycerin uh, we use for suspected cardiac ischemia. Ischemia meaning diminished blood flow resulting in diminished oxygenation to the heart or to any body part for that matter. And um, nitroglycerin is a vasodilator. It's predominantly a venodilator, so it, it dilates, causes dilation of the veins, the big veins in the body. It's also an arterial dilator to a lesser extent, so it can dilate the coronary vessels and might improve collateral blood flow in the heart. But primarily what it does is it dilates the big vessels, like the vena cava and the other um, vessels in the venous system, and that reduces uh, preload, which is the amount of blood returning to the heart. And consequently, when you reduce preload, you reduce the workload on the heart. And when you reduce the workload on the heart, that may reduce, help reduce the pulmonary edema. And we can actually give uh, nitroglycerin, uh, a single spray is typically 0.4 milligrams, and so we give it under the tongue. Uh, a typical spray, um, yeah, it gives point four. And in CHFers, if their blood pressure is at least 140 systolic or we have an IV in place, we can give them high dose, 0.8 milligrams, so two sprays under the tongue. And oftentimes that's extraordinarily helpful for acute pulmonary edema. <coughs> the other thing we do for uh, CHFers is uh, cardiogenic CHFers, we put them on CPAP. And we PPV them PRN, right? So three-word dyspnea, altered mental status, they get PPV'd for sure. So um, we've already talked about uh, CPAP device. So the indications are slightly, or the, the mechanisms are slightly different. Um, I've already talked about this, but um, with CHFers, in contrast with COPDers, it helps to drive fluid out of the airways. Um, whereas in COPDers, it stents the distal collapsible airways. And um, uh, PEEP increases FRC, and that increases surface area for gas exchange. You don't have to repeat this because it's all stuff you've already written down, right? Uh, so when do you PPV? Uh, again, the usual, right? Uh, they're unable to follow commands, keep the patient sitting position, explain what you're doing, show them the BVM, get behind them, uh, and then initiate transport. So pulmonary embolism, um, this is not a common occurrence, uh, but you'll see probably a you know, good uh, 10 to 20 P, uh, PEs in your career. Some of you more, some of you less. Um, 
and uh, the etiology um, most commonly uh, clot forms or thrombus forms in the deep venous system and that's usually uh, do you know what body part clots usually form in that break off and then travel to the lungs the legs exactly right so they th you know people get a thrombus in their leg <coughs> If you're going on a long flight, anything over four hours, um, you should be, well, any flight for that matter, you should be getting up at least every hour and walking around. Uh, I always get, on long flights, I always get an aisle seat so I don't have to bother people. You know, I don't bother with the window seat because I want to get up often, uh, especially at my age. Um, even at your age, if you're taking a flight to Australia or China or something like that, take a couple of baby aspirins before you go <coughs> and take, take them again in six or eight hours. And, uh, or one baby aspirin's fine uh, to reduce the risk of clot formation. Because if you're sitting for a long time, uh, like long, long flights, sometimes you get uh, clots that can form in your lower limbs. Um, at your age, unlikely to happen, but why take any risks, right? But just get up and walk frequently. Or you know, while you're sitting, you can practice contracting your muscles you know, contract your leg muscles, contract your butt muscles. Uh, you know, try to do it in a way that, you know, it's subtle and, you know, the person sitting next to you doesn't see your hips thrusting, you know, in some, <laughs> some odd manner, you know. <laughs> yeah, Kegels, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you guys are disturbed. Um, so 90% originate in the iliofemoral veins, the big emboli, and um, uh, the, the risk for pulmonary embolus is uh, highest with when people have the, what they call the Virchow's triad. Uh, uh, triad. So that means uh, the first one is venous stasis. So any, anything that causes, um, diminishes blood flow in the venous system, like immobility, someone who's bed, been bedridden for two, three days, um, someone who's had a cast on their leg for a long period of time, you know, if you can contract that, that leg while it's in the cast, try to keep the muscle activity going because that milks the veins and keeps the blood flowing. Um, anyone who has edema in their foot, their ankles, um, CHFers, paraplegics, um, um, hyper coagulability so patients who, who tend to be hypercoagulable are um, patients who people who are obese have um, some cancers malignancies pregnancy uh, on estrogen replacement therapy so that's women in menopause quite often um, and any um, a third thing would be any endothelia damage so recent trauma or surgery burns indwelling catheters IV drug abuse uh, those are all high-risk things. So if you get someone who <coughs> is having signs and symptoms fairly consistent with pulmonary edema, the first thing we want to ask is if they have a history of deep vein thrombosis, DVT, right? Or if they've got, ever had leg pain, or do they have leg pain right now? If they have calf pain or upper leg pain, or they've got a history of leg pain that's, that's not from an injury, um, then we worry about clots and those clots break off and they end up lodged in the lungs. <coughs> so it can cause, it'll cause infarction of the lung parenchyma, so infarction is death, right? So death of uh, the functional part of the lung. This is what a big pulmonary embolus looks like. This is a post-mortem uh, view because this was big enough. That's about the size of a sausage and that was enough to kill them, yeah. 
Yeah, it's you big. Yeah. Well, and when they're dead, you can pull it out, right? You just, just pull it out. But um, yeah, so presentation typically they'll be dyspneic. About ninety percent of patients will be dyspneic with it. Uh, they'll be tachypneic, ninety percent. Uh, they'll have a sudden onset of pleuritic pain. So pleuritic means sharp. They'll have sharp pain and they'll be able to pinpoint where it is. It's right here or it's right here. It's very sharp and it's constant. Right? So pleuritic chest pain. Uh, they'll typically have equal air entry bilaterally. Uh, and their chest will be clear, but they may have localized crackles. So if they've had, if they've had a pulmonary embolus that's been going on for two, three hours, you know, I've had this sharp pain that's been going on for four hours. Uh, they're going to have an inflammatory process around that area, so they may have fluid buildup in that area of the lungs, so there may be a localized crackle, but um, whether you're able to hear it or not. They may have cough, they may have uh, splinting or guarding, meaning it hurts to, to breathe in that area. Uh, they, if it's a big enough embolus, they're going to have JVD. So think about this. <coughs> You've got um, the right side of the heart trying to pump blood to the lungs, right? The left side of the heart pumps blood to the rest of the body, but the right side of the heart is trying to pump blood to the lungs. But when it pumps blood towards the lungs, there's a clot that's blocking that blood flow. So the blood backs up into the neck veins and into the right side of the heart. So you get distended neck veins with, uh, with a pulmonary embolus. So if you've got a patient with a pleuritic chest pain and they've got JVD, you know, distended uh, jugular veins up to the angle of the jaw, you start thinking uh, PE, pulmonary embolism. Um, how do you distinguish that JVD with a PE from CHF? The lungs are clear. CHFers, they'll have JVD, but the lungs are full of fluids, crackles, right? <laughs> it's freaking complicated to be a paramedic, eh? It's like, <sighs> Like seriously, I don't know how you learn this stuff. It's taken me 35 years. Sorry, what was your question, Tina? You said CHF was JV, has JVD but clear crackles. That didn't, didn't sound right. I wrote, so I wrote clear crackles. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay. so, so pulmonary embolism, JVD with clear lungs. CHF, JVD with crackles. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I podcast because uh, people often say, you know, I listen to the podcast and it's completely different from what I wrote down. Uh, they may or may not have hemoptysis. Hemoptysis is coughing up blood, yeah. And they may have a localized wheeze or crackles, but unlikely you're going to hear that, quite frankly. Tachycardia, very common. Diaphoresis. You got chest pain, you're going to have a fight or flight response, or you're going to be, you might be sweaty, pale. And they may syncopize. They may have syncope. I don't think syncopize is actually a word, but Dr. Scott Weingart, who's a famous uh, ICU doc, uses the word syncopize, so I use the word syncopize now. So he's, uh, they may have a syncopal episode. So if you get, s you may get called for syncope. And one of the things we have to ask when we encounter someone with syncope is do you have chest pain? Do you have difficulty breathing? Uh, if they don't have chest pain, did you have chest pain before you fainted? Do you recall? Or did you have any pain before you, uh, before you fainted? Um, hypotension happens at about 10% of patients. So if they're hypotensive, they're basically in shock. And they're in shock because they've got a big embolus. And 
if blood from the right side of the heart is not able to get through the lungs because of that clot, then there's going to be diminished blood getting to the left side of the heart, and as a consequence, <laughs> cardiac output is going to be reduced, right? <coughs> so they may be shocky. They call that an obstructive type of shock, <coughs> which makes sense, right? So management is really uh, supportive um, in nature. So SpO2 in room air, hook up the ECG, O2 PRN, uh, PPV PRN, and that's it. Any questions? Okay, I got one more. Stand by. <laughs>